Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Cricket in her blood, but it took a friend, not family, to talk our guest into picking up a bat. Fast forward some 20 years and she's dominating the world of women's cricket. Named in the ICC Women's World T20 side five times, she's picked up back-to-back ICC Women's T20 Cricketer of the Year awards, a Belinda Clark medal and countless records along the way. Tonight's trailblazer is Alisa Healy. Welcome, Alisa. As we speak, it's been about, what, two weeks since the end of your WBBL season. What have you been up to? Um, oh, first of all, thanks for having me. And, um, oh, look, it's been two weeks of just being a normal person at home in Sydney, which um, hasn't been the case for the last six to eight months. So it's um, been nice to get back outside and, um, yeah, live relatively COVID-free. <laughs> been a bit of a novelty for you. Uh, of course, the Sydney Sixers missed out on a finals berth, but on a personal note, what a finish to the season. 111 off 52 balls for your fourth century in the WBBL, which incidentally is twice as much as anyone else. Um, do you wish the season had gone just a little bit longer? Um, oh, look, it, it would have been nice to, uh, I guess, hit our straps a little bit earlier and potentially even win the game uh, the night before so that we could sneak into the final somehow but um oh look we just unfortunately didn't play as good a cricket as what we would have liked and I'm sure if we'd had it gone any longer we wouldn't have gone any better so um <laughs> it was just uh, one of those situations but yeah it's obviously two years in a row that we've missed out on the finals but um you know what we're we'll come back bigger and stronger as we say every year and um you know it's such a tough competition and it's getting harder and harder every year and um I guess that's really good signs for cricket here in Australia and across the world as well. Well, as I mentioned, you've had a bumper year, as has women's cricket. In fact, the sporting event of the year and a truly feel-good moment in a 2020 that's, you know, been pretty ordinary. 86,174 people at the MCG. Can you still hear the roar of the crowd for that final? <laughs> yeah, I can. And it's um, <laughs> probably one of those moments that you, you'll probably never forget for the rest of your life, no matter when you um, start going a little crazy at old age. I think you'll still remember that moment. So it's, um, yeah, it's... It's a moment that I'll definitely never forget. Um, one that I relive in my mind, you know, every opportunity I can because, you know, a small part of me thinks that that might never happen again, especially for, for someone like me at the stage in my career. I hope it does for some of the young kids that get to experience something like that again. But that's something that I never thought that I'd, you know, even get the chance to do, you know, play at the MCG in front of, you know, almost a, a full crowd um, and obviously playing a World Cup final and, and win it here on home soil is something incredibly special. So I'm glad that it's sort of 
has remained for a lot of people one of the best sporting events this year and um, hopefully it's you know one of the best sporting events that we'll see in this country over the next little period of time because it was great for women's sport great for women's cricket and, and so great for the community to, to come out and support us and get a taste of women's cricket and I think um, you know most of the people there enjoyed it and it was just a an amazing occasion. Yeah, it certainly was. But in the lead up to that World Cup, a lot of the PR was encouraging the public to turn out and support the Aussie women in the final. Now, that was before a ball was bowled. Uh, much pressure? Yeah, well, I was saying, um, in hindsight, we've been thinking about it and I said, I've never been a part or seen a, a, a world event, um, you know, just simply a final be promoted by the players that could potentially be in it, you know, <laughs> over 12 months away. So it was such a bizarre occasion, but, you know, we saw the importance of it and I guess we saw the importance of us being there in that final as well. That would have, you know, helped bring a, a crowd in, but ultimately they got the dream result in Australia, India, and it was a heavily Indian, um, you know, populated crowd and it just created a really nice um, a feel and a really nice atmosphere for everybody to go out there and, and enjoy themselves. So. Yeah, look, we were under a severe amount of pressure, so so to see us, you know, come out the other end of that and um, perform really well in that final game, I think, um, just shows, I guess, the maturity of the side more than anything else. We had no problem finding the boundary on that night. Uh, How clearly can you recall your knock? It's all a blur, if I'm completely (laughs) honest with you. I don't remember any of it. I think I remember, um, the only thing I remember is the ball before I got out, um, because I said to Moons, Moons was sort of saying, oh, you know, maybe I should, you know, pick up, uh, lift the my strike rate here. Maybe I should start going. And I said, Moons, get me on strike. I'm on here. And then I miss hit one down the long on. But um, oh, it was all such a blur. And all I can remember is I had a smile on my face the whole time. Uh, even walking out there, marking centre, I just thought it was an unbelievable occasion to be a part of. And I was just going to enjoy every minute of it and um, went out there and, you know, played the way that I've I've always wanted to play and that I keep trying to play every single time I walk out there. And fortunately, it came off that day. But I guess to see the team play so well together uh, in that moment under so much pressure, I think, um, yeah, it was was a really special feeling amongst the group. Yeah, you look like you were having so much fun. But I want to ask you about the aftermath. (laughs) Dancing on stage with Katy Perry. Do you think you pulled out some of your best moves there? I am the worst dancer on the planet. So I was so far out of my comfort zone on that stage with Katie. It wasn't funny, but I was literally just living out every, um, you know, childhood dream of being a rock star and was like high-fiving all the kids in the mosh pit. So I was having the best time. Um, you know, this was obviously about three days before COVID hit, but I literally high-fived, you know, probably 80,000 people across that stadium. So it was, um, yeah, it was amazing. And it was great to see some of the girls um, really come out of their shells well, more so for everybody else to see in Molly Strano and Sophie Molyneux. They really took the limelight away from Katy Perry, which I never thought I'd see happen. But um, for her to be so gracious and allow us on the stage and I guess to take every single moment away from her, um, yeah, it was pretty amazing. And I think everyone in the crowd enjoyed it just as much as we did. Yeah, fully deserved though all that, uh, the, the pleasure and the celebration. It was actually the perfect <laughs> campaign. It was a wonderful night. As you mentioned, just before the world shut down due to the COVID-19 pandemic, how was your adjustment from World Cup heroics to lockdown restrictions? Well, honestly, it was it was a really weird one because more often than not, and, and this might sound a, a bit um, arrogant, it's not meant to say that. <laughs> To, to sound like that at all but more often than not when we win a World Cup we don't really get to celebrate it we're sort of shipped off to the next tour the next series or straight back into a WBBL or mm. 
something else. So it was sort of, it was a weird feeling that all of a sudden, you know, we're back, we're here in Australia. We were supposed to go to South Africa, I think seven days after that um, final, but instead we're at home celebrating a World Cup and it was such an amazing feeling to be able to do that and it sort of sort of sounds ungrateful and, and whatnot, but we felt like we were living the dream. We'd just won a World Cup, we're at home celebrating for a couple of months. So it was it was kind of a really special time and I know that, you know, the world was struggling and everybody around us was struggling and our communities were struggling. But for us, I guess for me in particular, um, I enjoyed being at home and enjoying the celebrations of what was an amazing 12 to 18 months that this group of people had achieved and to get that opportunity to celebrate it is so rare. So it was a strange one um, coming back into training and training, you know, away from people and in small groups and, um, you know, doing weird things like that. That was strange, but the lockdown in itself actually suited me down to a T, I think. It was, um, I felt a little bit guilty to be enjoying myself so much. <laughs> Not at all. You've got fans all around the world. Many, I know, enjoy your Twitter banter and your social media comments. Did I read that you had people in India offering to send toilet paper during the so-called shortage here? Oh, my God, I did. Yes, I forgot about that. <laughs> I um, was one of those people that every time I went to the, um, the Woolies or the Coles or whatever it was, to get toilet paper there was none available and it was all fun and games we thought it was all hilarious until you run out of toilet paper it's just not funny anymore the last so sheet. i did I, I yeah i pulled out a put out a little bit an sos on twitter and um yeah a few people from india offered to ship some over they obviously hadn't um, been through a toilet paper shortage yet but luckily one of the ladies that i golf with um came over with a care package one afternoon wrapped in garbage bags so that nobody knew that she was dropping off toilet paper so it was um yeah, it was a funny week, that one. <laughs> it was like contraband for a while. Uh, you did get in a bit. It was, of, yeah. You did get in a bit of golf during the restrictions. Uh, how's the handicap? Yeah, been been golfing a fair bit. Obviously, not in the last couple of months. It's been in and out of hubs, but um, yeah, golfed a lot during COVID. Made a few swing changes and um, got the handicap down to four and a bit. So, um, not enjoying that at the moment. Sporadic golf with a low handicap is not too much fun. But in saying that, it's been great to sort of learn more about another sport and. Uh, I guess, try and develop your skills at that as well. Yeah, remind me never to go out on a course with you. Uh, it is a popular pastime <laughs> for cricketers. It's not an impressive sport. <laughs> <laughs> uh, how do you find it? It's a different skill set to hit a ball that doesn't move compared to one that's flung down a wicket at pace. Uh, how did you find it? Oh, it's incredibly frustrating. I think, you know, when you walk out to bat and you get out first ball, you can always blame, you know, a good delivery or <laughs> poor concentration or something. You can always blame something else. But on the golf course, you can only literally blame yourself. So... Um, yeah, it's a it's a tricky one, but as I said, I've really enjoyed, I guess, learning more about the game and learning more about myself at the same time and, you know, managing emotions around the course and um, things like that. That sounds really serious. I actually go out and play socially, but it's actually a really good thing for me to, um, you know, stay competitive, but, you know, have fun at the same time because I'm a really competitive person. I want to win all the time and, um, you know, do things better than everybody else, but um, so golf's a, a really good one for me that I can't be better than everybody else. It's really hard work, so it's a good leveller for me. It sounds very zen, uh, learning to uh, control your emotions <laughs> and working on your mental game. So is there a post-cricket career on the golf course, do you think? No. I've. <laughs> what I have discovered during COVID is that I would be nowhere near good enough to join any of those amazing <laughs> women that play on the, the golf tours around the world. They are elite, and I am what they call a hacker, a proper amateur. So... Um, no way in hell, but um, Mitch keeps encouraging me to, to give it a real go because he, he'd like to caddy for me on, the, on some sort of tour. So, 
if I can get my handicap down low enough to go and play in some cool pro-am events, then I think that'll 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 be enough. Well, a post-cricket career is something Elisa Healy doesn't have to consider for now. Next up, we turn back the clock and find out why having a cricketing family wasn't enough to talk Elisa into picking up a bat. Stay with us on Trailblazers. You're listening to Trailblazers with Stephanie Brands. Elisa Healy is a legend on the cricket field and those who are aware of her family history would think that was always a fate complete. However, it was anything but... Now, Elisa, you're born on the Gold Coast. Is there any chance you consider yourself a Queenslander? <laughs> I, uh, I actually get in a little bit of trouble in the household uh, when I pull out my maroon jumper three days a year yes, to state yes. of origin. So I, um, I've never technically played sport for Queensland, so I can't claim myself there. But it is called state of origin, so I do, I do wear that maroon jersey with pride. I hear you. I've been out of uh, Brisbane longer than I've been in it, but uh, still uh, still bleed maroon at heart, at least those three times a year anyway. Yep. <laughs> what were you, about uh, seven years old when you moved to Sydney? Yeah, we were. We moved down. Um, Dad, uh, I think, got moved um, with his work down here and um, we settled in down here and, um, yeah, it was a whole new world. I don't think I would have played. I often wonder if I would have played cricket if I, we had a stayed in Brisbane because uh, it was per chance that I fell into the game down here, but... Um, yeah, I often wonder what my life would have been like if I had stayed up there, that's for sure. Mm. Well, your father, Greg, of course, was a successful cricketer in his own right and, well, everyone's heard of Uncle Ian. Uh, did that translate you into at least being a cricket fan? Yeah, I did. I watched the cricket. Like, obviously, it was, um, you know, in the family and I probably didn't really understand what Uncle Ian was doing. I saw him on the TV a lot, but I didn't quite <laughs> probably fathom, you know, how good he was and, you know, what he was doing at the time until I sort of you know, took up the game and got a little bit more involved in it that I sort of understood that he was pretty good at what he did and um, it was pretty amazing what he was doing. So, yeah, it was... I wouldn't say I was necessarily destined for cricket, but once cricket sort of found me, it sort of stuck. So potentially I was destined at some point. Mm. Well, we'll get on to that in a sec. But first, most Aussie kids, <laughs> as we all know, play all manner of sport. You were no different, but early signs showed talent as a footballer or soccer player. And then it seemed you were heading down the road towards a hockey future. How did that come about? Mm. Yeah, well, I um, I loved my soccer growing up. That's, you know, the one sport that you know, I carried on after moving down from Brisbane and um, yeah, something I played quite a lot of and I ended up going to a school um, here in Sydney at primary school and one of the te- teachers then um, was married into a really big hockey family. They all still actually quite involved in this club in Sydney but she coaxed me into coming atro- across and trying hockey and um, I loved it, absolutely loved it. I probably loved the bat and ball sports more than uh, my unco nature of kicking a soccer ball around. So I um, I gave that a go and ended up giving away soccer, um, you know, probably around 14, 15, um, but ended up, yeah, playing hockey and absolutely loved it. Really got, got right into that and, you know, played for New South Wales and sort of school school kid stuff and then ended up playing for New South Wales in under 21s um, down here. And, yeah, absolutely loved my hockey. I, I don't think I was... Uh, as committed to the training regime as many of the others. So that was probably <laughs> where my career was going to end, but still play it whenever I get the chance. Uh, I get in trouble when I play it now in the in the off-season here with cricket. Yeah, um, worried about very injuries. of what we do, <laughs> yeah. But um, uh, we've, we've got a plan as a group. We all grew up playing together from under 12s and we'll come back and play vets together when we're all 35. So I'm sort of waiting for that day to come that we can all get back on the on the pitch together and run around. Yeah, brilliant. Uh, what other sports are you a fan of? Who do you follow? 
Um, a little bit of everything. I'm, I'm probably one of those snuff people that sits on the couch and just watches whatever sport is, is on and whatever, um, you know, season's on, whether it be winter or summer. So I'm a bit of everything. Uh, I enjoy the footy codes. I think obviously grew up with NRL and mm. um, have sort of fallen in love with AFL at the same time, but still went to a private school, so I love the rugby union. So look at me. I'll literally sit there and watch um, what is whatever's on the telly and um, always wish I was, I was better at netball or basketball. I think they're the two sports that um, are really good to watch on the telly. So I wish I'd given them more of a crack when I was a kid, but um, still enjoyable to watch. Oh, well, you'd make a crazy good centre or wing attack, I think. That'd be awesome. <laughs> I did give netball a little run, but I was not very good. So uh, I'll leave that to the prize, I think. <laughs> okay, well, you found your niche. Back to cricket. What finally got you or who yeah. finally got you to pick up the gloves and a bat? Uh, yeah, it was a weird one. I, w- I went to the same school that um, the teacher got me to play hockey. I went there and one of the girls um, that I became friends with said, oh, I'm going to go down to the, the local park this weekend and try this thing called cricket if you're interested. And I was like, yep, sure, why not? Like I was playing every sport. Why wouldn't I add another <laughs> one to the list? And I think dad was potentially a little bit excited that um, it had come to mind and took me down there. And I absolutely hated it. <laughs> I ended up spending, I think, most of the week's playing in the sandpit and dad have to run down the hill and grab me and get me back on to hit balls off cones and, and learn how to play the game. But um, yeah, funnily enough from there, the the local um, cricket club's president ran the, the have a go cricket that it was called at the time and um, signed me up. And next minute I was playing with the boys uh, in a couple of weeks time. And um, lo and behold, in week three, the, the gloves got thrown at a young Healy and uh, got stuck with them for the rest of my life. So my fast bowling career ended um, lasted a whole of three weeks. So it's a bit unfortunate. <laughs> well, like a lot of players of the same era, if I can call it that, that era, you did grow up playing in boys' sides. Did you even think about that when you were little or was it just how everything worked? I literally was just one of the boys I saw no different um you know I didn't really necessarily think that I was anything different to what they were and I don't think they really thought of me any different at at the time either it was probably only up until I often say up until when I when I played for Barker that I really felt um you know a a difference you know that Mm -hmm. someone had an opinion that a girl was playing with the boys so it was it took until I was 17 to really feel that so it was um I guess I was really lucky that I was always really welcomed into every side that I was in and um, for me, I suppose it was, I was sort of that personality that didn't really care that they were any different to me. I was just out there to play some cricket and have some fun. So, yeah, I was really lucky. And um, ultimately, it, you know, it helped my cricket playing with these boys that were a lot bigger and stronger than what I was. Yeah, there's an argument that it makes uh, girls into do better players. I mean, these days it's seen as a triumph when there's enough girls to create a girls' competition, but it's sort of, uh, I wonder mm-hmm. if it takes away something intangible uh, from their development. You mentioned Barker College uh, for your senior years. Now, if I recall, that was a school that hadn't long had girls enrolled, and I think it was only in the senior years. You were the first girl to be selected to play among boys in the New South Wales Private Schools Comp. Did you... Did you object or were you surprised by the the backlash and the ensuing publicity caused by sort of one or two disgruntled gentlemen? (laughs) Yeah, it was, um, you know, I often say that that's probably the first time that I myself had seen such sexist behaviour. And I know that sounds really silly, but um, probably my parents probably sheltered me from a lot of that um, when I was growing up. I'm sure there were parents out there that were blowing up that, um, their son had missed out on the team that you know I was getting picked in for for a young girl. So I'm sure my parents dealt with it a lot more than me. But it was the first time that I really saw it. And you know, being a, a 17 year old girl, um, you know, in a heavily 
boys dominated school it was mm. something so foreign to me which I think is you know is really strange which meant that you know the school was, was fantastic at you know welcoming us there but um yeah it was it was a weird one and at the time it was probably more difficult for the school to deal with than it was for me because the boys and you know the head of cricket there um Steve Tomlinson was so welcoming of me and you know gave me you know every opportunity that I wanted to to go on trial and I said to him you know if I wasn't good enough don't pick me you know put me in the twos or the threes um doesn't really matter where I play I'm just you know really grateful for the opportunity to go and play cricket and lo and behold I'm in the first and um you know it's a story and people want to talk about it but at the end of the day it it really helped me develop my cricket at that point in time you know we were playing red ball cricket um you know boys were bowling fast they were bowling outside my off stump as well um you know I just mm find out ways to score runs and you know I felt like it really developed my cover drive my cut shot and ultimately I had to learn how to play the short ball because that was the first thing that was coming at me when they were running in they wanted to you know hit the girl in the head so <laughs> for me it it sort of it helped make me resilient it, it tightened up my technique and you know we went out there had some fun and we won the competition so you know there were some some really amazing memories for me in that year of cricket. Mm, probably a bit of satisfaction that the naysayers are now eating humble pie as well. Um, when did you realise you were more than pretty good? Was it New South Wales selection? Um, it's, it sound, this might sound really funny to you, but I've, I don't think I've ever felt that. Like I've never <laughs> sort of, yeah, I've never really felt that sort of level of comfort that, um, you know, that I didn't feel like I was ever better than anybody else. It was sort of, only really when I got picked for Australia that I thought, oh, okay, well, I must be doing something pretty good to be picked for Australia. And it probably didn't dawn on me till, you know, maybe even four or five years ago that, you know, I probably need to knuckle down a little bit more to get the full extent of my potential. I was just there. I had a great time. I was really enjoying my cricket. Um, I went out there and did everything I could for the team to win games of cricket, but I never really thought about, you know, how I was I was as a cricketer personally, you know, what I could achieve or, um, you know, how me being a better player could contribute to the side instead of me just sort of feeling like I was doing my job. So, yeah, I've I've always sort of struggled with that. But in saying that, it's probably taken me to my later part of my career to sort of mature into that and understand what I could potentially achieve as a cricketer. And how did you go from part-time wiki to a full-time gig behind the stumps? <laughs> um, well, I was going to say a lot of pleading and whatnot, but it wasn't really. It was just a lot of... A lot of biding my time, you know, I was really lucky that um, I had another string to my bow in my batting and um, I found myself in the in the T20 side for Australia as a bat and had to run around in the outfield and, um, you know, stop balls or take catches or do whatever I could to, to help the team there. But ultimately my batting was what was keeping me in the side and just had to wait my turn for, for a chance behind the stumps and ultimately when I, when I finally got that opportunity, it was... Um, yeah, it felt more comfortable to me. I felt like I was always a keeper and keeper first and a batter second. So to finally get the gloves and sort of make that job my own was um, a really cool thing. And obviously it's been well well written that, um, you know, over the last few years I've got gotten more of an opportunity with the bat and I've really enjoyed, you know, having that responsibility at the top of the order and just go out there and have some fun. Well, Elisa Healy wasn't just earmarked as good. She was flagged as someone really, really good. After the break, we talk about her time in the green and gold. That's next on Trailblazers. You're listening to Trailblazers with Stephanie Brands. 
us our trailblazer today is Elisa Healy. Elisa, a successful state-level stint meant the only way was up. Do you remember the call that saw you selected for Australia? Were you expecting it? Um, oh, probably not. I wasn't expecting it, but I do remember the, the first call I got uh, to play for Australia. It was selected for the Shooting Stars team, which was like the Australia A at the time, and I was actually away um, with the, the Barker team over in Perth. We did like a trip over there to play some games against some other schools from around the country. And uh, we were on a ferry on our way to Rottnest Island and my phone rang and you'd guess what happened. One of the boys grabbed it, answered it, and then <laughs> continued to pass it around the group until whoever was on the other end of the line was had completely cracked the shit and said... Um, please hand the phone over to Elisa right now. And lo and behold, it's Mark Jennings from the, um, <laughs> the chief head of selectors for the Australian side letting, trying to tell me that I'd been selected for Australia. So it was, um, yeah, not a good way to start out your, your Australian career. But, um, yeah, after that, it, it was all just a blur. I think uh, I got picked for the T20 World Cup in the West Indies um, when Jodie Fields got injured and uh, went over there. And that was sort of my first real taste of an international, I guess, tournament or a series and um that was an amazing experience and yeah sort of just kept going from there so it was uh it was all a bit of a blur to be honest with you inauspicious start to uh, your relationship with cricket australia but uh, <laughs> <laughs> it all turned out good uh, when, when you look at it's about how it's going <laughs> well when you look at your your career as part of the national team i feel like if you look at the 2017 world cup it it seems to be a turning point in your career is that how you see it yeah, it is, and I think it's sort of been heavily publicised that it was almost a turning point for our whole side, um, but it definitely was for me personally. Um, it almost feels like my career is in, in two parts, and the first part was, um, you know, sort of there just doing a job and doing it quietly, but the second part has been given a lot more responsibility, and I've really enjoyed that and gone out there and, I guess, tested my talent and see, you know, how exactly how far I can take my game. But, um, yeah, that World Cup was definitely a turning point for me. I, I realised that what I was doing was not quite enough and um, if I wanted to get the team over the line, I needed to add to my game and ultimately uh, went back, worked really hard and put some new shots in the bag and then shortly after that got you know, got told that they wanted me to open the batting. So it was, um, yeah, a, probably a turning point for, for our side, but, yeah, definitely me individually. Yeah, I think Matthew Mott, the coach, had decided that you were going to open the batting across all formats. That's such a huge show of faith. As as you said, you went to work on, on your game. I think you went to see a friend, Ash Squire, uh, to help you. Yeah. Was that specifically because you wanted to develop a reliable sweep shot? Yeah, that, that's exactly right. I remember being really disappointed in myself when we were playing England and um, in the in the round games, we ended up losing a game that we really should have won, and we got behind the the run rate in the middle overs, and kind of got left to a couple of us at the back end to try and dig us out of a hole. And I remember Danny Hazel was bowling to me, and she had square leg up, and all the other fielders were out, and they're all my strengths, all those other fielders. But how was I going to get the ball to backward square? And the only way I knew how was to flick it off my legs. And in trying that, I got out LBW, and I thought it's just not going to fly anymore. I need to find a way to to access all areas of the ground and yeah went away worked really hard for a few months on a sweep shot and um some other obviously some power aspects to my game but that developing that sweep shot just opened up a whole new part of the ground for me and and made it more more difficult to bowl at and I think that sort of helped me um you know open up areas that I really like to hit and like give myself the opportunity to hit those areas so Mm. 
yeah, it was um, it was a big moment for me, and and one that I'm sort of glad in hindsight happened. Obviously, I don't want to, I didn't want us to lose, and I didn't want us to bomb out in that semi final like we did. But it was a great moment for me as a a learning opportunity, and I'm glad that I saw it as such and and went away and worked really hard at it. We well, you, you talk about uh, sort of altering your technique and working on your technique uh, in quite a blasé manner, but how hard is that? Is it like changing your golfer's swing? You must have had what twenty odd years <laughs> of a certain batting technique. Yeah, but it was also a, a, a sense of, well, you know, a lot of people have tried to, to change my batting technique over the years. Um, you know, I'm very bottom hand dominant and um, that's something I just learned when I was growing up. I was very good at the, you know, the pull shot and playing through the leg side and that was simply because my right hand was dominant and that's how I learned how to bat. And um, so many people tried to change it over the years and I was sort of frustrated and I listened to all those people and tried to take everything on board. But um, taking it right back and, and working with someone who'd seen me bat for a, an extended period of time and we just discovered that we decided sorry that why wouldn't we just use my bottom hand and use it to my advantage and, and bring in shots that I can play you know more easily and more freely than trying to fix my technique and play perfectly down the ground um, so we kind of just accepted that and then built on that and I think once I've accepted the fact that you know that's this is the way I play the game I'm quite an aggressive cricketer as well but how can I use that to my advantage that everything sort of fell into place a little bit more and um, I found myself making more runs consistently so I think it was just accepting of this is the way that I play the game and let's just go out there and do it. Understatement of the year I recall a 148 of 61 deliveries against Sri Lanka uh, where does that rank in your highlights reel? Uh, yeah, pretty special. I think um, sounds really silly, but having Meg Lenning out there at the same time and sort of having her there cheering me on, knowing that I'd just gone past her record, um, was sort of a, is a really nice thing for me mm. as a teammate to sort of um, you know be a part of. But yeah, look, it was pretty special. It's probably one of those moments that everything went perfectly. I think everything sort of felt like it came out of the middle of the bat, and I got I got lucky once or twice. But in saying that, um, yeah, it just felt really good and. Ironically, I was supposed to bat down the order that game, but um, to give somebody else an opportunity and to give myself a rest. And I told Moddy no, and I wanted to go out there. And lo and behold, I did bat. So I gave him a little thank you on the way off. (laughs) (laughs) Nice one. (laughs) February 2020, of course, marked a decade for you in green and gold. You've developed into a player that's really a leader within the national team. Yet you've said before that you are a reluctant professional athlete. What do you mean by that? (laughs) Um, oh, look, I, I often joke that I would have loved to play cricket throughout the 90s or the 80s or 90s where, you know, it was much more acceptable to, to go and have a beer, um, you know, pre-game, post-game, whatever you, however you wanted to do it. And, you know, the fitness side of the game wasn't as important. So that was definitely um, how I felt. But in saying that, I think I've sort of learned to accept all of that and learn learn the role that, you know, all that off-field work um goes into making you a better player and a better teammate as well. So uh, whilst I feel like a, a reluctant professional athlete, it's, it's a job that I'm really enjoying at the minute and I enjoy playing in a team environment and, and being able to, I guess, to lead from inside the group and get everyone up and about to go out there and perform as best as they can. And I think it sort of brings a smile to my face to, to see other people do really well, knowing that they're enjoying themselves. Well, you've also developed a nice line in uh, banter. We won't call it sledging. Um, who's your favourite <laughs> batter to get under the skin of? Uh, it's a tough one. I, it's it, it's a really sad um, thing over the last sort of 12 to 18 months. I feel like I've really lost that. I've become <laughs> too nice. And, um, you get to know too many of these players around the, the world now that sort of sledging or banter, as you put it, is sort of 
been put away, but um, oh, I wouldn't say there's too many batters that I enjoy getting under the skin of. I enjoy playing against my teammates, if anything. So when the opportunity pops up that you know I'm playing against Elise Perry or Rachel Haynes or uh, even Meg Lanning, I, I do love a little bit of a chirp behind the stumps because um, it's all in good fun, but it is fun to try and get them out. The women's game, of course, has changed so much. There's now sponsors and broadcasters, national support. How much has that changed the day-to-day life of a female cricketer? I mean, kit-wise, did you grow up with one pair of gloves and one bat and you now have more than you can count? <laughs> I I haven't changed too much in that department. I've only got a couple of bats, a couple of pairs of gloves and um, try and do the right thing by my kit sponsor and not um, completely bleeding them dry of gear. So <laughs> not much has changed there. But, yeah, look, it... it it has changed quite drastically as well, really quickly. Um, I just look at, you know, the, the sponsorship opportunities that have popped up for me over the last 18 months is, you know, astronomical compared to what the first eight years of my career. So um, it it's funny though, like living in a household with, um, you know, a husband who's at the top of his game as well. And, um, you know, the male, male athletes obviously dominate every aspect of the sporting um, page in, in everything in this country, but I guess, for us to be pushing that now and um, to see a lot of the female athletes up there as well and um, being the faces of different things or being on the TV so that young kids can see them, I think has been really cool. And it's, it's almost been nice to be able to spend, um, I guess, share that with him um, to see that the women's game is doing so well. And just quietly, Cadbury's is a sponsor. That's got to be a good thing, right? <laughs> not, not for me, not for me that hates running. I can't have chocolate and not running. I have to pick and choose there. But, um, yeah, they are a pretty good sponsor. There was a lot of blocks of chocolate hanging around that last series against New Zealand, that is for sure. They disappeared surprisingly quickly, though. Yeah, I wonder why. Well, it became yeah. a career not just a pastime, and cricket might not be her whole life, but it certainly dominated it. Next up, we talk about what it's like to be the only Belinda Clark medalist in a family full of cricket stars. You're listening to Trailblazers. Alisa Healy is with us on Trailblazers. Alisa, you're now a household name along with a handful of others in your side. However, you had years of being known as Ian Healy's niece. Tell me honestly, how much did your uncle actually play a part in your career? (laughs) Um, Not a lot, I don't. (laughs) I could safely say that um, unless, uh, except for probably when they threw me the gloves when I was 10, because uh, my last name was Healy. That was about as much as he had. But, um, oh, look, he has actually been um, quite helpful without my, throughout my career. I think once I sort of started playing more at the elite level, um, you know, he took a real interest in me and, and what I was doing and has helped out quite a lot along the way. So he has had quite a large impact um, on it. But uh, he wasn't the reason I started, I don't think. Well, when you were presented with the Belinda Clark medal, your speech was absolute gold, acknowledging you're the only one in your family to win that particular award. How dear do you hold that one? A peer-voted award is different to the others, isn't it? Uh, yeah, that's probably, you know, one of the greatest achievements um, sitting here on on our uh, trophy cabinet for me. I think, um, you know, obviously you get voted because you're playing well, but your teammates don't have to vote for you. You know, you can make 100 and people might vote for the bowlers instead. So... Mm. For me, it's, um, you know, cricket's always been about team and my teammates and, you know, how I could be the best teammate possible. And I guess for them to sort of acknowledge that, um, yeah, it was, was really special. And for me growing up, um, not even growing up, throughout my early part of my career, I never thought that I would get anywhere near a medal like that. You know, there were some amazing players in the side that were doing things way better than what I ever was. So, um, yeah, it was a really special moment for me and I guess for my family and you know, my batting coach Ash as well to sort of celebrate in that mm. that moment because um, 
yeah, it was a truly special one for me. Well, you mentioned your parents. They've been a big support throughout your career. Was it the classic parental job of driving you all over the city and or the state to far-flung ovals all week long? Yep, pretty much. <laughs> and um, to, to my mum's credit, she still has, you know, really little idea about cricket and um, anything still. And, you know, I've been playing 20-odd years and my dad's been playing even longer. So... <laughs> She still comes, she turns up, she brings her knitting and, and comes to watch and um, cheer me on but doesn't really understand the game that, that well. Um, well, she pretends like she doesn't anyway. But, yeah, they drove me everywhere. Dad threw me a 1,001 balls along the way and then um, graciously handed me over to a batting coach. Um, still rings him up and lets him know that he's doing a bad job. But, um, yeah, they've been fantastic in enabling me to, to do what I wanted to do and ultimately to end up with a career in cricket. Well, you're known for your huge smile and your it's really palpable, your enjoyment at being out in the middle. Life hasn't always been that simple. Losing your sister, Karina, at a young age, how much did that change your perspective? That's a lot for a 12-year-old to deal with. <laughs> yeah, it it was. It was a, a lot to deal with at the time and it's still a lot to deal with now. You know, 18 years on, it's, um, it's forever with you. And yeah, it, it's a hard one. But I guess for me, it's the silver lining to it all was what it enabled me to gain in perspective is something that I probably would never have experienced if that hadn't happened to me. You know, cricket is just a game. It's obviously my job. It's a career. But at the end of the day, it's just a game. And a bad day on the cricket field is nowhere near a bad day that, um, you know, a lot of people around this country and around the world have day in, day out. So it's enabled me that perspective. And it probably enables me to go out there and enjoy the game um, more than most. And, uh, whilst it's sad and, um, you know, she's forever in our hearts and in our minds every single day, it's, um, yeah, it's obviously something that's given me the opportunity to go out there and just achieve whatever I wanted to because, um, you know, I'm firmly aware that, um, you know, life is very short, so you go out there and enjoy it as much as you can. Yeah, an incredibly tough thing to fathom. It, it does change things forever. And, and on top of that, your parents moved overseas for a period of time. You had to become very independent. What was that like as a young person just out of school? Yeah, well, it was it was a weird thing for me. But at the same time, it was, it was great for me to experience that, to become so fiercely independent and looking after the family home and a dog and um, going out there, getting a job and um, just trying to juggle all of that um, you know, I think helped mature me somewhat at, at a young age and um, as frustrating it is for my parents now that, you know, I'm not on the phone to them 24-7 asking <laughs> them for help with problems or mum to go and have a, a cup of tea with to help me with an issue. Um, you know, I've always worked out a way to do it myself and um, probably frustrates the hell out of Mitch as well that, you know, I like <laughs> to go out there and do things myself. But look, it, it was fantastic for me at a young age and um, well, sometimes I, I felt like a little bit sad that all my friends were going out there, going out every weekend and going to parties and whatnot. And I was sort of working or at home feeding the dog or, um, you know, preparing for a cricket match. I think I wouldn't change that for the world. I think I've got the rest of my life to enjoy those sorts of things. But for me to, to go out there and, um, I guess, experience the world like I did at a young age, I think, um, you know, it was a really enjoyable experience. Did you become a decent cook and a housekeeper or were you a bit of a two minute noodle sort of girl? Yeah, I'm still a horrendous cook, so I don't know how I managed. Um, I think there was a, there used to be a pub at the top of the hill that saw me more frequently than um, probably most of the other old men that hang that hung out there. But um, no, I'm still not a great cook. But 
look, it, it taught me to survive, so that's all that matters. <laughs> <laughs> well, now, of course, as you mentioned, you've got your own household as one half of the Steelies, uh, matched to, married to Mitch Stark. That's a connection that goes back some 20 years. What did you think of him when you met him? You must have been, what, 10 years old? <laughs> It's a really, it's a sad story on my behalf because, you know, I, was, I always tell the story that I was the only girl there and there were 14 other boys there. So why the hell do you think that I remember you? Obviously, he remembers me because I was the one that stood out. So I don't remember him that young. But look, yeah, we used to share the wiki-keeping um, on the weekends every Sunday playing rep cricket. And Were you better? Um, yeah, it's. Uh, I'd like to think so, but look, he turned out to be a fast bowler, so he was never going to be a keeper forever. So it was fine that he handed them over to me. But yeah, look, it was a, it's such a strange um, story. Also, I guess a really nice one that we've known one another. Our families have known one another for such a long period of time that, um, yeah, we are like one big family. And yeah, it's great that I guess to, to, to be able to marry, you know, one of your best mates, I think it was a, it was a really nice thing. Yeah. Well, some people might imagine that having a husband with the same job is the perfect scenario. Is it like that? I mean, you get to support each other. Do you get in the nets together at all or do you just get in each other's nerves when you talk cricket? Yeah, God, no. I uh, get in trouble for watching too much cricket on the TV. So, um, yeah, I'm not – it's not probably not great. It's probably not the perfect situation for us to, to have the same job, more so from the time apart. We spend, you know, potentially nine, ten months of the year apart. Um, we're travelling around the world and whilst we do what we can to get back and support one another as much as we possibly can to see one another, but – it's tough, but we sort of accepted that and figured that our cricketing careers won't last forever. So if we give it a real good crack now, we've got the rest of our lives to hang out and um, we just want to achieve what we can at the minute. But I guess that is where it comes in handy and we know exactly what you know one another are going through and I know exactly when he's had a bad day on the on the park, so I know mm. when to steer clear and it works both ways like that. Whereas if I knew nothing about cricket, I'd put my foot in it constantly. So <laughs> we are lucky and, um, yeah, it's great. I really enjoy being able to see him, you know, achieving what he wants to on the cricket field. And I'm sure it, um, it's the same for him. Well, you have hit the ripe old age of 30. Um, invariably, you're now going to get asked about family, whether you want kids, how long you're going to play on for. But realistically, Elise, you're in the prime of your career. Has any of that even crossed your mind yet? You always just look like you're having such a good time. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a strange one. I was, throughout my whole career, I was always going to retire after the T20 World Cup at home so uh, here I am still going um, but yeah, look, I've, for me I always thought our career sort of ended at 30 you know that um, you know we weren't making a lot of money out of it um, I would have to go and you know get a job start a family do all those normal person things but you know the game has changed so much over the last couple of years that the opportunities are really endless for us as, as female cricketers and for me I, I'm really enjoying it at the moment and I'm probably enjoying you know a role that feel like I'm playing a role in, you know, I guess, changing the society and the community um, in them in appreciating women's sport in this country. So that's kind of really driving me to go out there and enjoy myself, keep playing. And I know Mitch is really su supportive of me and going out there and having a great career as well. So whilst I thought it might come to an end in March, it hasn't and I'm still going and um, I'm sure there's a lot of cricket left. Well, you've got so many records and accolades. Is, is there any particular record you're still chasing? Uh, not really. <laughs> um, I mean, I'd love, I'd love to be a part of um, a one-day uh, World Cup win. I think I was sort of ran drinks the last time we won one in India and um, didn't really get much of an opportunity to play. So for me to be um, to play in that and contribute 
the way I, I would like to. Obviously, it's been postponed. It was supposed to be in February, but I'd like to be a part of that and, and be a part of a successful one, that's for sure. So what's ahead for the summer? That's a fantastic question. I'm not really sure. Um, <laughs> that's a good the, thing, the right? The schedule is, <laughs> yeah, it's still so up in the air. Um, I've got a, a little bit of time off now, about a month off um, over this Christmas period, so I'll get to to watch a bit of Mitch play and support him where I can. And then I think we've got some more domestic cricket before I think we hopefully head to New Zealand in February to, to play a little international cricket over there. So it's still a little unknown, but in saying that it's, um, yeah, hopefully we can still get some cricket up and going and um, hopefully see this country get back to some sort of normalcy. Elisa Healy, we hope we're going to see you on a cricket field for many years to come. Enjoy your break. All the best for the future. And thank you so much for sharing your story on Trailblazers.